Welcome to Iris Equity, the podcast on all things law and technology. I'm Tima. I'm Paul. And on this episode, e-governance. Welcome to a new episode of the Iris Equity podcast. Today, we are continuing the series on digital law. And we are talking about e-governance, so how digital technologies can help in administration. Essentially, um, e-governance is broadly kind of known as the digitalization of the public sector. So we have government agencies or government bodies using digital technology to assist them in their administrative processes and sometimes even in democratic processes. Yeah, so when you go to a government website and try to get some information about a specific law or try to find a form and fill it out and kind of manage this, this is e-government and this is kind of what we want to analyze today so from a legal point of view also from a technical point of view yeah and i mean what paul just described is like the basic level of Mm -hmm. e-government right so this is pretty much what every functioning um government should already have in place basically a website or each different government body having a website that contains information and lets you know what you need to do in different administrative processes Mm -hmm. but some governments take it you know one step further where they create sort of like a portal or an entire platform where you can execute different administrative processes on a specific platform and you can do different things on a centralized platform or maybe different platforms and in that way you can kind of exercise your right of access to different government procedures without having to physically show up at a government office to do it. Yeah, so essentially we can like have different stages of this. And I found when researching this, a couple of these graphics from the early 2000s where mm. they're like really proud that, you know, their government office had a website now and mm. was on the web. Uh, but we've kind of moved on from this since. Right. And we, you know, I often kind of expect that I can do everything online. I want has... to do everything. I don't want to see people. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, why especially do I have these to go? days, I don't want to see you. Yeah, and and even even without the pandemic, yeah. Like, why do I have to come to your office? Exactly. And why do I have to fill out a form that I could like also email you? Exactly. So that's like the basic level, right? And then a good example of this is perhaps Rwanda has a digital platform called mm-hmm. Irembo where basically it's a web portal where the government offers the citizens the ability to do a lot of administrative processes online. So you can apply for a birth certificate online, you can register for a driver's license, you can get a deed, uh, land deed transfer done online. So you can do all of these administrative processes online without having to physically show up at home affairs or Mm -hmm. the deeds registry office and so on. I mean, what is really interesting in this is that many countries already struggle with this yeah so like just putting a form online and just instead of you know filling out the form by hand and giving it to this person working at the government office but like sending this electronically is sometimes not possible yeah and i mean if you think about because now as we go on in the podcast we're going to talk about countries that are really doing Mm -hmm. e-governance that are really pushing the boundaries and taking it to the next level and are even putting whole democratic processes online, if you think about what is possible Mm. with technology and then you look at what some of our governments are not able to do, which in my opinion is the bare minimum, it's kind of disappointing because you're like, look what's going on in Estonia and I have to show up here (laughs) at Home Affairs every two weeks to do what I need to do. Like it's, It's kind of annoying because there's so much that we could do if our governments were willing to leverage technology in the right way. 
Right. And I, I found interesting, for example, what Germany is doing, because, you know, Germany and, and bureaucracy in Germany works in principle well, like it's not a failed state or anything, mm. but they're not really known for their uh, IT, um, well, processes mm. and, and uh, digitalization efforts in the public sector. Uh, and they have this law now that by the end of 2022, every government service essentially has to be offered online, but they are making it so, so complicated. Like they have all these kind of creative sessions and brainstorming sessions for this driver's license form okay. that, you know, it's just the written form, like the printed out version, just put it online and everybody will be happy. Yeah. So some of these processes are really basic and, mm. you know, you're probably thinking, okay, so we get it. We see, we've seen this before. This is nothing new. Why do you have a whole podcast about it? And I think it's, we have a whole podcast about it because we're going to talk about a country like Estonia. We're going to use Estonia as our use case example of a country that's really leveraging digital technology in a way that is completely kind of revolutionizing how their government works, how their citizens interact with government officials, and even how things like voting in mm. a in like a national voting um, scheme, how all of that can actually, in principle, work in a digital format. Maybe let's let's start talking about Estonia because. It's really interesting, like the, the kind of examples that we brought up right now. It's Rwanda, it's Estonia yeah. uh, on the one hand, which are, you know, really specific yeah. in, in a way. And, and Germany as the, the counter example yeah. on the other hand. I think what's really cool about countries like Rwanda and Estonia is that they are countries that are fairly young mm -hmm. in the history of countries, right? Mm -hmm. So Estonia became a democracy in 91 and Rwanda became a democracy, I think around 95. And both of these countries are countries that kind of came out of difficult situations. Mm -hmm. So Rwanda had this really intense um, civil war and Estonia came, got its independence out of being under Soviet domination for years. So these, both of these countries started building their infrastructure, their government infrastructure, their administrative infrastructure in a time where it made sense to leverage the internet and use digital technology to develop something. Whereas other countries like Germany, for example, are countries that have existed for hundreds and hundreds of years and are now basically taking old administrative procedures and trying to um, put them onto a digital mm. platform and then they have to have conferences about how to digitize a uh, driver's license application, right. which is when you look at what Estonia is doing, it's like, come on guys, you can't even compete. Yeah. And I mean, if you are setting up a government in infrastructure now, you are going to do it differently than you did it a hundred or 150 years ago. hundred uh, percent. And changing these existing uh, procedures and, and processes that you have already and maybe they're like different across uh, different jurisdictions uh, and kind of unifying all of this and then putting it online, this can be difficult. And so small countries on the one hand and also young countries have it easier. Exactly. So let's dive into some of the cool things that are happening in the space of e-governance e e and let's look at Estonia as our use case example. So first, something really cool that Estonia has is this e-residency thing, right? Mm -hmm. So in 2014, they became the first country to offer electronic residency to people who live outside of the country. So basically what the government does under this program is that non-residents can apply for like a smart ID card, which is, which is issued to them by the state. And this provides 
a non-resident who doesn't live in the country will pro- never will probably not come to the country provides them access to different various electronic services that a physical resident would also have so it makes it easier for you if you want to set up a company in Estonia if you want to purchase a home in Estonia you can do all of the different things that you would need to do electronically mm-hmm. without physically being there but what's also weird is that the car doesn't give you any residency rights it doesn't allow you to travel to the mm. it's not like a travel document it's not a residence permit it's just a card for you to do electronic services it's it's a bit weird and and we kind of try to wrap our heads about around this yeah. and you know the only real applic- field of application would be founding a company mm. in the EU or having like some kind of legal obligation to have a representative in the EU and mm. needing an EU address for example and an EU bank account mm. so for this it's kind of useful i guess because mm. it like has an institutional framework for this kind of specific thing but the tax situation isn't any different um as you said there's no residence tied to this mm. uh so it's really just virtual in a way yes but i think it's in- it's so interesting that their e-governance structure is so um innovative and set up in such a way that you never have to physically be in the country in order for you to be able to have access to various electronic services that citizens in the country have access to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of just a light flex, like look how great we are. You don't even ever have to come here yeah. and you can do all of these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, something that might be interesting is also, and this is what it's also made for, is digital nomads. So if you don't really have one place to live, you work remotely and you kind of travel around and you want one place for you know your official residence and where you can have your bank account and and your health insurance or whatever yeah uh then maybe you Estonia can do all could of that be, there exactly a thing. so that's a really cool idea um and that's something that they can do because they have such mm-hmm. an advanced e-governance structure right. Another interesting thing is the electronic voting mm-hmm. that's been taking place in Estonia since 2005 mm-hmm. which is very early yeah. So essentially, basically, you can vote over the internet yeah, yeah. I in mean, Estonia. I, I found a couple of sources, so not for Estonia specifically, but I feel like everybody, every election expert that you ask and cybersecurity expert you ask says, don't do this. Yeah. Uh, because it has a number of issues, especially uh, simply because you have... On the one hand, you want anonymity. You don't want to know like who cast which vote. Mm. And on the other hand, it has to be ensured that you cannot vote twice yeah. and only the people that are eligible to vote can vote. Yeah. Uh, and so this is a really hard task. You know, you have all these paper things in, in normal elections uh, and you have to guarantee this. Plus you have to have a record that you can then check. And it's not just some mysterious counter that like gets incremented every time somebody votes for a party, but you have to kind of check and audit this. Yeah. So it's like really hard to design a system for this. That works. That works and that is safe and that people can trust. I mean, I also saw a list of countries that did pilot, like a lot of countries have done pilot projects Mm. on um, voting online and just to kind of see how it would go. And in most countries, they've decided to rather stick with like the mail-in ballots Mm. and physically showing up at the polls as opposed to doing this. But I think what's interesting is the way Estonia has this like verification thing. Mm -hmm. So basically the verification is done with your smartphone. Mm -hmm. So you get a QR code on this desktop screen where you're trying to vote. And then after that, you get a smartphone QR code application thing. And then you have to verify 
who you are mm-hmm. using the QR code that, and then you also have to put in information using your smart ID, which is mm-hmm. like the identity cards that they have for each of their citizens. And that's kind of how the whole process works. I mean, this is interesting. And this is also showing how this infrastructure, you know, this single online identity in, in the government is important because mm. if you don't, if you can't trust really the identity of a person, you have don't have one single way, a single trusted way to log in to a government website, mm. and this gets so much harder to to administer mm. such an election. So. And I think also what what they do to make sure that things are certain is that if you vote online mm-hmm. and then you show up at the polls mm-hmm. and you vote at the polls, they will they will only take like the latest vote. Okay. So you can't vote twice, but they will So only... they're all interconnected. Exactly. So it will be the latest vote that you mm-hmm. give that will be counted. So it's still one man, one vote. But yeah. to make sure that someone is not online voting on your behalf and then you show up at the polls and vote in a different mm-hmm. way, they take the most recent vote. I mean, it's also interesting how this would change voting behavior and voting outcomes. Yeah. So because you have one group, which is rather, you know, young people, well-educated people, mm. uh, for them, it's easier to vote because they can just do it online and do it in within five minutes or yeah. so. Versus people who who don't, you know, don't know how to do this, don't have to set up. Uh, they have to go to some kind of office, maybe wait in line and so on. Yeah. Uh, how this may shift election outcomes. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's super interesting. I also think it's interesting. I read a, an article that kind of spoke in the other way mm-hmm. and said that voting online was a negative thing because mm-hmm. for young voters, typically the voting would happen in the context of like a family, right? Mm-hmm. So the whole family would get together and everyone would vote together. I mean, this is what the, the author yeah, yeah. suggests. Yeah, but, but at least go to the place exactly. together. Yeah. So um, if you were doing it online, it would be easier for parents to manipulate what the child mm-hmm. is doing because they would be able to yeah. see what the young person is doing and who they're voting for as mm-hmm. opposed to when you go into the poll, when you go into the booth, mm-hmm. it's just you by yourself. Yeah. So you can have a little bit more anonymity about your vote in that way. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. But I mean, this is still like also a, an issue discussed with mail-in voting, for example. Exactly. Like same, same issue. And and still an issue for, for influencing and, and, and voter suppression and so on. Right. And also, I think it's important to note that Estonia has quite a small population. It's mm-hmm. like 1.32 million people. Mm-hmm. So I think in their context, this e-voting might be easier to facilitate as opposed to in really large mm, groups. Definitely. Uh, another thing that I just briefly want to mention is the healthcare data that they are um, processing. So they have uh, a kind of decentralized system uh, for health data, but it's connected in certain situations where you need it. So for example, when you when an ambulance uh, treats you, uh, you they can have access to your medical records via an app that you know connects the the, the database of your doctor or a hospital, uh, and therefore you can see, for example, your allergies or the medication and so on. Yeah, and in connection to this, they also have a centralized paperless system for issuing and handling medical prescriptions. Mm-hmm. So it minimizes the paperwork of like prescribing and dispensing medical drugs. So all the doctors are able to issue e-prescriptions that go to the pharmacy of your choice. And then you go to the pharmacy and collect your medication there using your smart ID. Mm-hmm. So it really is not just digitizing paper 
processes, but yeah. it's on um, like creating new ones that weren't possible before. Exactly. I, I found a couple of other examples for this, not just in Estonia, but in, in general. Uh, so uh, one is public participation, especially on a local level. So Vienna has this app, for example, where you can tell the city, hey, this street light is broken or mm. hey, uh, this bike path doesn't make sense or this and that needs to be repaired and so on. Mm. So this kind of like, this can be useful for local governments as well, you know, to see where the problems are and to kind of get the public involved in this and get more more committed to the common space. Yeah, and that's a great example of using digital technology to facilitate the democratic process, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously we all have the right to communicate with our elected leaders and to be able to tell them, you know, what our issues are within our community, but it's often difficult to do that. So an app like this is genius because the elected officials are able to know what the problems are instantly and fix them instantly. And also the citizen can tell, you know, if you're continuing to report something on this app Mm -hmm. and nothing changes over a period of of time, then you know that you need to vote for someone else next time. Right. And like this, this app in in particular has the feature that um, you can vote on issues. So you can see when somebody else posted something Mm. you can say, oh yeah, I I noticed this too. Or yes, I agree. Mm. So like kind of get everybody involved and kind of also make this more public. Yeah. This is, this is exactly what we mean about, you know, the old school, what e-governance was Mm -hmm. in kind of old school thinking and the potential that e-governance could have in the future. Yeah. So I, I found a couple of examples to where um, there are certain downsides with this. Yeah. So, for example, um, there is this one project in uh, in the US, in DC, where teachers were supposed to be evaluated. So they had this issue that different schools performed differently. And the idea behind this was that it was, was the teacher's fault. So there is a certain percentage of teachers that are just bad and, and they should fire them, essentially. Mm. And they created a kind of algorithm to figure out which teachers they were and ranked all the teachers and fired the bottom 2%. So, and and like in, in theory, it sounds like a good idea. Yeah. You have like these 200 teachers a year that get fired that were the worst. Mm-hmm. And you have numbers, concrete numbers. Yeah, something there's is being some done. data to show. You can, you can sell this. Yeah. Well. Uh, the issue with this was that this was at least in part based on student test scores. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do you really compare different students' test scores, it's, it's some, some are performing better than others. So what they did was how did the test scores improve year after year? So a, student, uh, so a teacher would be evaluated by how much their students' scores had improved uh, compared to the last year. Mm-hmm. What this led to, though, was people, uh, teachers actually, cheating on the tests of the sh- students for their students in order for mm-hmm. them to get a better evaluation. So like marking really leniently or giving away grades. It, it, and- it was like a standardized test and okay. they had like uh, erased certain answers <gasps> and like filled it out differently. No. Uh, and, and they would get a bonus if their students pe- performed really well. But the issue was in the following year, the teacher that had them the year afterwards, and if they didn't cheat, they would, would be, they really, would be bad. really lower. Oh, no. Uh, so this did not work at all. So so this this is a huge issue. Yeah. Uh, and it's just people gaming the system, essentially. Yeah. And this always is, is prone to happen when you have a kind of algorithm, when you have a standardized solution for something and, and a, a quantitative solution for something that isn't easily quantifiable. Mm. So like a quality of a teacher, for example. 
That's very interesting. So it's it's kind of a danger of you know automating these processes that you just lose so much information and and simplified. Yeah, I mean totally. And there's other dangers that of course you could face from a legal perspective as well. So we obviously have the conversation about data protection mm -hmm. and how it's really difficult for you to have an e-governance platform or portal or whatever that's processing personal data if you don't live in a country where there's an infrastructure, where there's a legal framework that really protects personal data. It's difficult for people to buy into this. Mm -hmm. And it's also problematic in the long run because people's personal data could be compromised if there's no effective data protection kind of framework. Right. And the government has sensitive data that you might not want everybody to know mm. uh, on there and especially don't want for example, private businesses to know. So a classic example would be your health data and a private health insurance exactly. that maybe shouldn't be really exchanged because this might adversely affect this. Yeah, and also if you don't have regulation, for example, the GDPR, where we talk about automated decision-making mm -hmm. and profiling, which goes exactly to this conversation with ranking the teachers and mm -hmm. so on. If you don't have um, some sort of regulatory framework that allows people to um, appeal those decisions or has allows people to have the right to not have adverse decisions made about them solely based on automated means mm -hmm. without any human intervention, then you end up with situations like that. Right. So in the EU, we have the GDPR, as you said, a right against automated decision making. Uh, there's also uh, discussions about a draft for an AI regulation, so the regulation of artificial intelligence. And there is one interesting aspect in this is that it bans uh, so-called social credit systems, mm. so where all of your behavior, like you know, jaywalking and donation, uh, blood donations and whatever, are being uh, tallied against each other, and then you're being ranked and get certain privileges or yeah. uh, granted or taken away. Uh, and this is something that. Uh, the European Commission, and I think most people would agree with this, see as an issue, see as a danger, and therefore explicitly ban this in this uh, proposed AI regulation. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that makes complete sense. And then, you know, outside of just regulations that are new or mm -hmm. these new laws that have been developed in recent years, these new regulations that have come out, we also have to think about pre-existing laws that might be problematic when mm -hmm. you're trying to digitize an administrative process, for example, that that has existed for hundreds of years. Right, right. So you need to not only adapt what administration and, and what these different government entities are doing, but you need to maybe change the law, change the legal processes uh, behind this uh, in order to keep up. So for example, there's this thing yeah. I, I was telling you before <laughs> yeah. that uh, a certain license needs to be printed or it needs to be written uh, on a special kind of paper and you can't really print this. This is why every government office in Austria needs to have a typewriter still. Crazy. And uh, sorting out these uh, really uh, old and, and stupid, frankly, rules uh, and, and changing and modernizing them is really a prerequisite to really digitize uh, the government. Yeah, no, 100%. Well, this brings us to the end of our episode and the end of this digital justice um, series that we have been doing. We hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. I think it's been I, interesting yeah. to kind of dive into. This is like real intersection between law, justice, all of that, and digital technology. It's, it's a bit the, the other side of what we're usually doing. Yeah. So it's been cool. Um, and it's been nice to be back after yeah. our long break. Yeah. And... Um, we will see you soon in a new episode of Farsi. 
Thank you.